This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! So, welcome back to the Not Quite Daily Show Fall Season, 2017, Episode 3. We are talking about Land of the Lustrous, Episode 3 here, and I have to say the crisis that we ended on last episode didn't resolve quite the way I expected. Not to get in the habit of starting every video with a rant, but what was up with this fight scene with the snail? Like, never mind asking me to believe that Daya and Bort can stick to the columns like insects, repeatedly. Never mind asking me to believe that snails can make lightning-quick strikes with their tails that are somehow many times the length of their body. Let's say I accept all of that. What is the thought process behind this fight choreography and camera work? The diamonds flip, and the camera flips, and the diamonds spin, and the camera spins, and we alternate between close-up and wide-angle, seemingly at random, and then somehow the space they're in shrinks and expands uh, at will. Daya lands this close to the snail, and then spends the next 10 seconds running full out to close the gap. And for some reason, she doesn't run along the ground that she's already on, but decides to surf along the tail like Tarzan to get there. This is ignoring how caustic the snail was last episode. Now we're going to go out of our way to touch it, I guess? And additionally, what's the point of having a fully 3D modeled and rendered characters and environments if you're gonna do weird things with camera angle to skew perspective and distance? Like, I can't believe that the same person responsible for this scene was also in charge of the scene at the end when Cinnabar comes upon Daya in the field. That scene uses the advantages afforded by 3D animation, allowing us to shift from observing Cinnabar, being outside of her, to seeing things from her point of view. Because of that, in a small way, we are her during this moment of high stress and what she believes is going to be a watershed moment when she thinks she's coming upon the Lunarians at night. Even though we know Daya is out there and can probably guess that's what the light is that she sees, we've swapped to Cinnabar's perspective long enough to feel some of her disappointment when the moment turns out to be nothing. That is a good use of the storytelling tools provided by this format. This opening snail bit is not. It's a hot mess of flaming garbage. In, uh, my opinion. And this leaves aside the whole problem of making the startling existential threat that the snail seemed to represent at the end of last episode into basically what is a cute mascot character. Like, how are we supposed to believe the next threat to our characters is serious instead of some sort of switcheroo? I mean, this series had one kind of tone in those first two episodes, with the body horror and all the personal crises and the characters all being basically a prey species to some alien threat only to come into this episode where we have this goofy subplot where Daya believes her friend has turned into basically a slimy puppy. This leaves me a bit at loss at what to expect from the series from now on. Which of these two shows is the real show? Will the real tone please stand up? Okay, rant over. Just know that the reason the boards are not as full as they usually are is because some of the kind of ridiculousness in this episode decreases the number of important things that happen. It's not much, but we do still have some movement on goals and conflicts. We do have some characterization, all the bit with Daya is probably the best thing about the episode. There's a tiny bit of world building, and interestingly enough, we actually do hit a lot of our themes. 
I do have some things to watch for in the future, and my speculation gets a little curtailed, but I'll explain that when we get there. Let's go on to the main episode. Goal-wise, like I said, not a lot of movement. We have a new goal this episode that is also resolved this episode, which is Daya's attempt to restore Fos back to normal. Now Daya, bless her heart, believes the snail is Fos and introduces the snail as Fos throughout most of the episode. But despite not getting a lot of help and getting some more harmful offers and a lot of people kind of not caring either way, she does endure to the end trying to put her friend back together and succeeds. The only other real goal movement is one from Cinnabars from the first episode, where you can tell she wants to feel useful, feel desired, feels like she belongs. And while there is a small bit of movement as far as this goes, where she's actually the one that makes the suggestion that solves the problem, what I think is actually significant is that she has taken Fos's hastily made promise and started treating it as a potential solution to her problem. Cinnabar, whether this is wise or not, now treats that goal of hers as potentially in the hands of Fos, at least in some small part. This may not be the wisest of moves, but sometimes you gotta do whatever you need to do to give yourself a little hope to keep going. Conflict-wise, we ended last episode by introducing the conflict of Fos being eaten, and we spend this episode resolving that. This is a conflict-driven episode. Fos does seemingly get put back together and seems to be the same person, the fact that she's able to converse with the snail and understand it at the end suggests that something about this process may have changed her. We don't know yet because the episode ends right there, but I think that implication is there. Master Kongo's age and the meditation that he seems to have to do because of that, maybe not because of that, but I'm just guessing that's why, it turns out to be more than just an afternoon nap. He appears to be asleep during this entire episode, which lasts from afternoon through all the times Daya spent asking everyone for help, through the night where she asks Cinnabar for help, and then everyone helps her get the snail up in the morning, chip things apart, Rutile puts her back together, and then it's sometime during the next day the actual episode ends. Congo's been asleep, meditating, whatever, through all of this, apparently. So that suggests to me that this will be a potential source of conflict. It's not like he's out for a couple of hours. Of course, how that'll affect things, how long it actually is, how often he has to do that, these are all things we don't know at the time. But the point, I think, is very clear. They can't rely on him all the time. He and whatever advantages he brings to the fight with the Lunarians and any other kind of crisis that pops up are limited. We absolutely can't count on him to solve everything, which we already knew, but this is definitely a bigger time that he is out of pocket than I would have guessed originally. Finally, we will add a conflict. I don't know if it's a conflict yet, but the idea that Fos may be changed. I just mentioned that, but this may be a conflict going forward. The way in which she may be different on the other side of this process may have unintended consequences. There may be something that happens now as a result of that, or she's in a position to do or become or be influenced by that changes the way the story would have gone if she hadn't gone through that process. So we're gonna keep an eye on that, see if we get development on that in the future. I don't think it's a conflict that can be undone, like she can't necessarily be put back the same way, but this moment we don't know if this is going to be a liability or an advantage or exactly what it is. It's an unknown hanging over our head and that kind of makes it a conflict. So characterizations are largely limited to just Daya. Most of this was about Daya, her one episode quest of getting Fos back to normal. Fos, despite being the main character, is almost completely absent from this episode, so not much characterization of her. Other than when she comes back, she's kind of still a brat, but you know. 
we do sort of meet a lot of the cast members that have not yet had a line or had their faces shown, but all we really get are tiny little things we can associate with them. We don't even get names for most of them. I'm not gonna worry with trying to talk much about them here. Daya, on the other hand, gets a fair amount of movement. Rutil made a comment in the past that the immortal nature of the gems makes it so that they are incapable of giving up on anything. And I think we get to see that in Daya this time. Despite having the wrong idea about what's going on with Fos, despite not getting much help and a little bit of pushback and a lot of sort of indifference from the people in her community, she continues to try to find a way to save Fos, even going past her own physical limits where she falls asleep because she's out too late. Now, this is admirable. We talked last time that Daya might not be very bright, kind of ironic for a diamond, but she's not aware at all about how everyone feels about Fos, or doesn't seem to be that aware. I don't know how many hundreds of years these characters have been around or been around each other, but you'd think she would have a better idea of what people thought of Fos by now, but apparently it was a surprise. Now, despite being determined as she was, she is still kind of sweet and kind of accommodating, but it's not an impediment. She still doesn't mind imposing on everyone. She doesn't mind hunting down Cinnabar. She's not afraid to grab onto Cinnabar to keep her from walking away. She rescues the snail from Rutile and whatever she would have done to it. She wakes everyone up in the middle of the night once she actually has the solution in front of her. She does all this without ever coming off as demanding or caustic or really anything except a friend in crisis, a friend trying to help someone else out. And I think despite how the community may feel about Fos, they react to Daya. They react to her desires, her insistence, her perseverance in seeing this thing through. Now, Daya is all these things when she's focusing on someone else's crisis. When it's her own crisis, she's a little more hesitant. She's running around thinking that the snail is Fos and that the snail is not all that concerned with being turned back into Fos. This leads her to ask the snail questions, thinking she's talking to Fos, but the snail can't speak. So this is rhetorical. This is Daya kind of speaking out loud. And it turns out she's kind of talking to herself. She wonders if her own advice to Fos about changing from within may have been what led her down this path, but this actually gets her thinking about her own change and what she wants to do. So you have a moment where she's thinking about Bort, thinking about the scenes from earlier in the day. And she says to the snail, thinking she's talking to Fos, she says, you don't have to compare yourself to anyone. No need to be jealous or put on airs either, is there? And then seeing the snail curled up, asks, are you happier this way? I feel very much like she is asking herself these questions or making these statements to her own psyche. Maybe you don't have to compare yourself to Bort. Maybe you don't have to be jealous. Maybe you don't have to put on airs. Maybe you can be yourself. Maybe you can be vulnerable. And then she considers, are you happier this way? Are you happier being something other than yourself, not having to worry about all that? Now, what does Daya think of this question? Well, she doesn't give up. She doesn't call it a night. Instead, she picks the snail up and says, I'm sure there's someone out there who needs you. Again, I strongly believe this is Daya speaking to herself. And in this moment, Daya is the one who is being needed by Fos. Daya is the one responsible for her restoration. Daya for not giving up on her. But it doesn't just mean Daya, because immediately after she says this, I'm sure there's someone out there who needs you, we switch over to Cinnabar who may be the person that needs Fos, just the same way that Fos in this moment needs Daya. So speaking of Cinnabar, she had just a little bit of characterization as well. So the first thing we get to see with Cinnabar is that she actually does take her job as Night Watchman seriously. I know in the grand scheme of things, she's probably not happy that Lunarians show up and try to kidnap them, but you have to think in the moment where she thought that was what was happening, she suddenly felt very useful. She suddenly felt like her job had meaning and she decides she is going to be equal to that task. So no matter how seemingly useless her job is or what other people think of it, it's clear she still takes it seriously. 
We also get to see that the way she treated Fos is not a one-off, had nothing to do with Fos. She seems to keep everybody at arm's length. She seems to keep everyone away, push people from her. Understandably, to be sure. It was nice to see that she's consistent in that, that that is who she is all the time. Rutile had remarked back in the first episode about how bright and clever Cinnabar was, and we really got to see a demonstration of that. She is the one that puts the puzzle together, but she does it pretty rapidly. Remember, there is no encyclopedia or any other kind of storehouse of knowledge on this island. She has deduced just from watching the snails on different parts of the islands what must be going on, that they must be eating the rock, they're restoring their shells that way, that's why their colors are different, and then makes the leap that if that's what happened with Fos, those colors would show up, that would be the giveaway. Now that is pretty good synthesis of knowledge and deductive reasoning with actually very little to go on. And it's lucky for Daya because Daya, bless her heart, does not seem to be the brightest thing in the world. Yeah. Now I didn't mention this down talking about Daya because it's more interesting to talk about it here. Daya seems to be a little bit of a romantic and despite Cinnabar's protests and her accusation that Daya tries to turn everything into romance, the way she talks about Fos really does sound like someone who's trying to convince someone else or maybe themselves that they don't really like that person. Now what that actually means as far as romance or friendship or whatever, let's not worry about that now. But it's clear Cinnabar was listening to Fos, took her at her word, and has actually moved a little over from despair into a little bit more of hope. I'm not sure she's actually all the way on the hope side versus despair, but it might be that for a time at least, maybe she's no longer wishing that she gets taken away to the moon. Maybe that's no longer what she hopes happens. Maybe she hopes Fos is gonna find a solution for her. But I think that's what she really wants, not to be taken away, just to feel useful, to escape from the night, and whether it's a good idea or not, she's willing to give Fos some time. I think this is significant to her character, and I'll talk about this later, but I don't get the sense that the gems are very changeable, that they tend to be kind of stuck in their ways, that who they are as people, their role in society, their own habits, that it doesn't shift around a lot. This is probably just a nice parallel to their gem-like structure, but it doesn't seem like they're capable of change very easily. So to see Cinnabar change this much, and again, it's not a huge change, but even this much is a big deal, I think. I think it says a lot about her. I think it means if she does get to be a major character, they will get to see her go through a lot of changes in the same way we're watching Fos go through a lot of changes. I don't know that we'll get a lot of time to spend with Cinnabar. Her whole night day thing, the mercury and all that means that it doesn't make sense to put her in a lot of scenes, at least not right now. But I think it's good to note that everything that she and Cinnabar went through at the end of that first episode wasn't for nothing. It's affected both of them. And so hopefully that'll be one of the substantial things we see happen over the course of this series. So that was most of the movement we got characterization-wise. Just a couple other things I want to point out. There's a little bit with Rutil and the snail that lets us see Rutil in a bit of a mad scientist role. Just wants to pull things apart, figure out how they tick. That puts her a little more into the scientist category than just the doctor healer category like she had kind of been into this point. So I think that's a little extra detailing on her character. There's also just a little bit with Bort that makes me think that she has a superiority complex. You could potentially argue that last time, but it's still hard to tell exactly what motivates Bort. That goal was still unknown. But her dismissal of biological creatures when Jade is relating what she thinks and what she remembers about them is kind of telling, I think. She clearly sees them as a species above, and she probably sees herself as above a lot of the others. I mean, it's clear the way she acts towards Fos, she thinks she's above Fos, and certainly the way she talks to Daya does not suggest she sees the two of them as equals. This may be oversimplifying, I'm not saying we now have Bork nailed. Just want to point out that, that suggests the idea that a little bit of a superiority complex might be part of what's going on here. It might also be reactionary out of an inferiority complex, which is something I hinted at last time. 
So there's just a little bit to talk about world building. Not a lot of the world got filled in this time. This episode was mostly concerned with the crisis with Fos, and we ended up not learning anything new about the Lunarians, nothing new about the history of this world or the past or, or any of that. A lot of the things I have openly wondered about in the series continue to be mysteries. I am guessing we'll probably get some of that information next time, but I gotta say this episode was not nearly as good at mixing all of these five elements together the way the previous two episodes were. Not to keep complaining about that, but that's the reason this list is so short. First up, we knew everyone had a role in this society, but we've mostly seen fighters and organizers to this point, so they really seem more like a militia than an actual society. But this time we got to see people whose role is that of having trade skills. We see a girl who is a seamstress, and a girl who is a woodworker, or a carpenter, or something like that. And they seem to be a little single-minded. Daya asks for help, and they are momentarily distracted by this, and then kind of go about what they're doing. They go back to making a desk, or they put a bow on the snail, because that's super helpful. All the while, Daya is running around with a snail that she thinks is her friend. <laughs> so I have to wonder, are the gems uh, kind of dumb? <laughs> I mean, outside of Rutil and Jade and Cinnabar, everyone seems really single-minded. Very simple in their thought process. Eh, eh, it's just, we'll figure it out. Just the, the thing with the bow on the snail, and I'm sure that's the same person who put Fos in the dress the first episode when she was asking for advice about the encyclopedia, and then Daya being clueless on multiple occasions about various things. Um, uh, the salt water doesn't kill the snail, it just shrinks it, somehow. I feel like maybe biology doesn't quite work the same here. The follow-up question I have for this though is, if salt water makes snails shrink, all right, then how'd that snail get to be that big in the first place? I got the impression from our little mythological fairy tale last episode that this area that the gems are on might be the only landmass on this destroyed planet, Earth, whatever it is. But the thing with the snail suggests that it's a landmass somewhere else, somewhere far away that they don't know about it. I don't, I don't know. But if this is what salt water does to a snail, then it has to live somewhere else that is not salt water, right? At least before the Lunarians scooped it up and brought it over here. Uh, we learned that Kongo's meditation lasts more than a couple hours, a day maybe, maybe longer. We don't know yet. He still hasn't woken up. Hopefully we'll get adequate details on that. There's a line early on that suggests what the bell is for. Or if you remember, I wondered what that was for. It seemed a very prominent part of the architecture. And I guess we can conclude that it is a kind of alarm bell. A, the Lunarians are here bell. I think it's interesting that its prominence in their little compound suggests how prominent the threat of the Lunarians is in their life to their society. This is maybe more than just a passing conflict. This might be the thing that they kind of have to base their life around, not just now in the moments that we're seeing, but for as long as this compound has been a thing, or at least as long as they've decided they need a bell for it. And then lastly, I noticed last time that the diamonds seem to be able to walk on water. This time we see them able to sink down to the bottom and search around in the shell and do all that work. I don't know what's going on here. They can control their buoyancy or something, but at the very least they can sink, they can float. The end. All right, let's talk about theme. Uh, we hit five of these, seven that are on the board. Individual versus society. Um, <laughs> Fos has really won over her community, hasn't she? One of the things I mentioned last time that we need to be watching for is how the community responded to this new threat and to whatever has happened to Fos. As you can see, outside of Daya, most people were pretty indifferent. In fact, more than one suggests that uh, 
this might be good, this might be better off. Fos is kind of preferable when she can't talk. But despite that, when a solution is actually presented at the end, when Daya figures out what's going on, she has no trouble rallying the troops. She has no trouble getting them to go through what seems like very tedious work, pulling every bit of Fos out of that snail's shell. It seems in the same way they can all rally together when presented with a single threat, like the Lunarians, and they can also all rally together when there is a single goal or an achievable, actionable thing. Outside of that, a lot of them seem a little single-minded, a little bit involved in their own single task, their own single thing they have to do, or what concerns them, or their own opinion of someone, whatever. This doesn't exactly make them very different from, you know, any society, but you do at least get to understand that community teamwork is a thing here, but they all are still individuals. They also prioritize the things they individually care about. Um, salvation from unlikely sources. So the two people who solved this episode's crisis, Cinnabar and Daya, are the two people having huge personal crises of their own. They, it would seem, might be the least equipped to deal with someone else's problems, and yet they're the ones that solve it. I think underestimating people and the solutions they may bring to bear is going to be a thing. I mean, I already put it as a theme, I know. Fos, I'm pretty sure, will play a larger and larger role in society, despite maybe her own desire to. The series seems to be reminding us that you can't count anyone out. People have hidden depths, hidden strengths, Daya is not that clever necessarily and is fragile, but she has determination. She can see beyond herself. Cinnabar can hardly even interact with the rest of her own society, but this has afforded her all the time to make the observations that eventually provide us a solution. Who would have guessed a kind of obstinate stubbornness mixed with lonely observation would be the thing that solved the problem? We had a little bit of touching on existential angst. I mentioned already, but it's when Daya is kind of talking to the snail, but she's really talking to Fos, but she's also really talking to herself. Remember, they don't really think they can change and they're immortal and all that. So Daya believing Fos had wholesale changed into something else starts her thinking about being able to change in a more substantial way than she had believed she was capable of to this point. Now, we don't know how much Fos has changed, if she has in fact changed at all, but Daya and Cinnabar's personal crises, and Fos's too, come to think of it, are all potentially solvable if they will let themselves change. They don't have to have this existential identity crisis going on if they find a way to change who they are or how they see things. I'm definitely enjoying how we have parallel themes through a lot of our different characters who are actually very different from each other and have different roles in society and how are thought of differently by their peers. And yet they all kind of have the same problem and they're all potentially facing it in a similar manner, or, or they will anyway. Uh, metamorphosis that I added last time. That's almost the name of this episode. It's Metamorphoses. Multiple Metamorphoses. Well, I don't normally talk too much about what titles mean, but that definitely suggests that we're not thinking about a single metamorphosis here. The title doesn't refer just to Fos changing into snail parts and back. It quite specifically means more than one change. So I think all these changing themes that we're talking about, including the physical changes that are going on here, is what this episode is about. Now the snail changed into a smaller version of itself. I don't think that probably counts as a full-scale metamorphosis, but it may be that the snail is also different as a result of this process. Like, it does seem to be able to understand speech, right? Like, that's probably not normal, right? And then Fos, we don't know how she's changed, but she can understand the snail, and that's clearly not normal. It may also not be normal for the gems to be able to change much about themselves, but that seems to be what several of them are trying to do, and maybe a little bit succeeding. I think all these little changes are, in fact, going to come together and change the society as a whole. Now, I mentioned already that the gems are not very changeable, and so I suspect their society is the same way. Like I mentioned already, people seem to be stuck in their roles, 
very single-minded in their roles. And so I think the society resists change naturally the same way the gems themselves resist change. If Fos has, in fact, changed in some actual significant way, this might be the beginning of a change that ripples through this whole society. This is going to be the beginning of some new direction for what is normally kind of an immutable, rigid system. Now related to that same idea, the last theme on here, pairs and opposition. To illustrate this one, I want to call your attention to the scene of reassembling Fos. Now the gems are crystalline geometric patterns, all hard lines and very specific arrangements. And this is how Fos starts, a pile of irregular Legos that Rutil is putting together. But as she gets further and further together, her reassembly is instead represented by this scene of organic flowy lines. Herself is represented as very organic shapes. The scene, in fact, is a kind of mirror of the very beginning scene that apparently was showing the snail's insides, where you have this very organic, clearly irregular shaped, clearly very biological thing going on with just music playing over the animation. And even the color schemes are almost opposites. You have kind of an orangey, ready thing going on with the snail, and then Fos's trademark green going on in the later one. And I think we are definitely supposed to draw that parallel, but that parallel is in opposition to the gem structure itself. The gems themselves are pairs in opposition. They are living beings, what we think of as organic, totally made out of inorganic substances. Hard, rigid, breakable, but reassemblable things. I mean, the episode even points out how normal organic things are not the same way. When they're broken, they rot. The older ones die out and are replaced by the younger ones. The gems, in a lot of ways, are not beings, not organic, not biology, not life, not the way we think of it. And yet, so much of them is all that. The way they look, the way they style themselves, the way they speak, their society, the fact they all have personal feelings and desires and goals, some more complicated than others to be sure. The gems themselves represent this tension between the changeable and the unchangeable, the mortal and immortal. I don't want to oversell this theme too much, but I feel like this is going to be a pretty big part of how the series retains thematic consistency going forward. Because I don't really know what changes are in store for us narratively. This could go off in so many directions from here, but I just bet you that this whole idea embodied by the gems themselves, and that we see embodied in a lot of the characters and their relationships also, is going to be one of the most consistent things that shows up. So what to watch for? Um, why is Daya a romantic? Or to rephrase that, why does Daya have a concept of what romance is? Like, I don't mean that I'm opposed to Daya shipping Cinnabar and Fos together, all right? If one gender-neutral but kind of feminine thing has it out for another gender-neutral but kind of feminine thing, then who am I to judge? But would romance actually exist in the society? While there does seem to be a bit of pairing off, I didn't get the impression that these are couples. The gems don't reproduce, if I understand correctly, and they seem to be a little bit ignorant of how biological creatures get things done, too. And so I have to wonder, is sexuality even a concept they're aware of? Do they have a real notion of what that is? Now, I realize the gender situation has not actually been spelled out in the show proper, and it may be this vagueness and the potential for titillation is intentional on the part of the showrunners, but if gender really doesn't exist, then that also makes sense that it wouldn't come up in the show. Because if you don't have a concept of gender, you wouldn't know to talk about it, right? Anyway, I bring that up because this once again brings up the fact that we still don't know a lot about the society, and we don't quite yet know how these deviations from our own society are contributing to the characterization of our main players. I'm just using this as an example, but I don't know if romantic subplots are the kind of thing I even need to be watching for. 
I don't know if that can even be a tension in this, because we still don't have enough information to know if that's a thing. So we need to be watching to see if they will fill in some of these gaps for us. Because right now, I don't have any sense to do analysis on that. I have one idea of how the characters should probably behave based on the information I have, and that's actually more information the show has given me. So we gotta watch for this to be filled out in addition to all the other things I've talked about. Again, I think next episode is gonna clear some things up for us, mostly because this episode cleared up almost nothing. <laughs> now finally on to speculation, and um, I gotta talk about something for a sec. Now despite the actual show of Land of the Lustrous being ahead of where my show is, I don't watch any of these episodes until I've finished the video for the previous episode. It's also the reason I have recused myself from any involvement in any fan forums, or even reading the comments on my own YouTube videos, because I am this sensitive to spoilers. The only way to not be spoiled is to completely block everything out. This is very important to me, and this kills me. I, I really liked interacting with people. I really miss the fan communities, and it's my own fault for being behind. But I want the speculation part of my show to be as pure as I can manage. I make a lot of guesses about where shows are going. It is part of the enjoyment for me, but it also keeps me from trying to cheat my analysis. If I know where some characters are ending up, for example, or how some goals or conflicts turn out, maybe I don't do as careful an examination of them as they are moved incrementally along. And that's a shame, because if the show took the time to show us that incremental progress, I owe it to analyze it in the same, in-the-moment way. Letting myself know what's actually coming down the line interferes with that process, it changes the way you look at a work, in the same way that re-watching a story is completely different than watching it the first time. So related to that, and the situation I find myself in, it probably will not surprise you that I hate it when shows have previews for the next episode. Little, tiny little clips, even without context, can still spoil things, because they start the speculative, analytical part of your mind spinning out on information it shouldn't have yet. So when I'm watching a show, I skip the previews. I'm bringing this up in this section, because this time I wasn't paying attention and I watched the previews. That means I have tainted my guesswork and so I will not be doing any real speculation today because I can guess kind of how some of it's going and I can't unknow and unsee the images I've already seen. The only thing I will speculate about, and it's something I've brought up already so it hardly counts, is that I speculate that Fos's transformation into the snail's shell and back again has permanently altered her in some way. It seems at the very least she can understand the snail's speech but I'm going to guess it's gonna go beyond that. I think our theme of pairs and opposition, the organic, inorganic thing going on there with the two scenes, is gonna have a concrete manifestation in Fos and the way she's changed. It may be that the snail absorbs some part of her memories, some part of her consciousness, and that's why the snail is actually able to understand Daya and communicate, kind of, with them. But I do believe this is going to make Fos singular among the gems. We already have a little bit of an evolution motif going on here, right? Not just the scenes I referred to, but the whole little fairy tale prologue at the beginning of last episode. And this seems to me like a pretty interesting direction to go in. Like actually the whole encyclopedia thing already suggests this direction to me. Fos is now supposed to be a collector of knowledge, and I think the gems are actually missing a lot of information about their world. They are perhaps largely ignorant of how biological creatures normally behave, if the snail really came from somewhere else, it means they are not very knowledgeable about anything outside their own environment. And the gems, or at least a lot of them, seem so single-minded 
that it may have never even occurred to them to wonder about what they don't know. Cinnabar might be the only exception to this, because she has no choice but to wonder what's going on. So I am guessing or suspecting that if Fos has found a way to communicate with other creatures, maybe beyond just the snail, then maybe Fos will actually start to uncover some of this information. Maybe Fos will, actually by accident, become the gatherer of knowledge that the encyclopedia writer is supposed to be. I mean, I already, because of the unlikely sources theme that I noticed, I already suspected that she would be the one to start to find out more things about the Lunarians, that she would be the one that would start to have some breakthroughs in that area. I also kind of suspect that Master Kongo probably knows more than he's letting on. He's probably hiding some stuff from the gems. I'm sure it's probably for their own benefit or to prevent some other kind of crisis. Uh, I don't get the sense that he's malicious in this, but I honestly don't have a real good basis for that speculation. I know I like to back up my speculation normally. I don't have a good basis for that. That's just the feeling I get from his character, the way he's a little bit cryptic and has such unquestioned authority. That suggests to me the pattern of a character who is hiding things. And maybe for some benevolent reason, but hiding things making Fos, who seems to be largely incompetent, the one in charge of gathering information, is not much of a threat to him if he's got stuff to hide. Like, how much is Fos probably going to uncover left to her own devices? So, that is my single multifaceted speculation. I'm sorry I ruined things for me with the preview, I just don't want to do that kind of tainted speculation. I just, that's not what I'm about. Uh, that ruins all of the normal analysis process I try to go through to come up with the ideas that I do. And I'm wrong all the time. If you've been watching my Made in Abyss series, you realize, yeah, you sometimes you're in the ballpark and sometimes you talk about a different show. And I'm okay with that. Speculation is more art than science, and it's not very good art, so I enjoy it. I hope you enjoy the process. Also, if not, it's always the last segment, so you can always just stop the video there. Speaking of which, that's the end. We're gonna stop the episode there. Hope to get four out soon, now that I've kind of ruined some of it for myself, and I'll see you next time. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearly on red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.